good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. I'm the campus pastor here at our Noblesville campus, and uh, really glad to be with you all this morning. Before we get going today, uh, I want to start by thanking you for your cooperation uh, with our request that you wear a mask here on Sundays and at other ministry events here in the building. Uh, I realize that's not ideal, but it is a really simple way for us to serve others during uh, this challenging season. But we also know that sometimes you just need a break from your mask. And so because of that, uh, when you're seated and not singing, and if you are socially distanced from others who did not come with you today, I want you to know that uh, you are free to take a mask break and uh, we're not gonna accuse you or judge you or anything about that. Uh, otherwise, please do help us out by doing your part when you're up and moving around in the building. Thank you again for your patience and your help with this. Hey, how many of you were able to get away a couple of weeks ago for fall break? Were any of you able to get out of town for a little bit? Yeah, we, we were able as well. Uh, my family headed to the Smoky Mountains. We had traveled through there previously, but we never stopped to really enjoy the, the beauty of that area. And so uh, we decided that this would be a good year to go and, and to experience that for the first time. And typically, whenever we travel, uh, I'm a planner, and so I do a, a lot of planning, a lot of thinking, uh, studying the best route to get somewhere and what we're going to do when we get there, but that didn't happen this time. Uh, my wife, Beth Ann, did all of the legwork for this trip. She did an awesome job planning uh, when we'd go and where we'd stay and what we would do while we were there. I really didn't have to give it any thought until the morning of. I just turned on Google Maps, typed it in, and, and off we went. But what I didn't know was that the most direct route to our destination included a section of highway that's called the Tail of the Dragon. And uh, it's named that because in only 11 miles of highway, there are over 300 curves through the foothills and the mountains. And uh, drivers come from all over the world to put their cars and motorcycles and their driving skills to the test. Uh, through the tail of the dragon, and uh, it, it is not for the faint of heart, okay? Some would probably say it's frightening. Uh, the whole time that you're driving, there's a sheer drop-off on one side or the other, and again, 300 curves in just 11 miles. Most of the time, uh, people are, are, you know, wanting to enjoy the beauty of God's creation when they're in the mountains, not on the tail of the dragon. They just want to go as fast as they possibly can. Uh, the speed limit's 30 miles per hour, but that seems to be a suggestion at best. We had motorcycles flying past us, and uh, many of those guys were wearing a special puck on their knee, so that as they went around corners, they could lay their bike almost flat and drag a knee around the corner. That's how fast they were flying past us. We counted over 100 Porsches, several Corvettes, and uh, even a Ferrari as we traveled through there. And while we were certainly looking at uh, all of those vehicles, I know they were looking at us too because we didn't take just any ordinary sports car through the tail of the dragon. No, we took our 2015 Dodge Grand Caravan SXT, okay? It's got cloth seats, a six-disc changer, and extra cup holders for the kids. You could say that our vehicle was built for the tail of the dragon. In fact, we got to the other side, and I shot Paul Mumaw a text, and I told him, hey, we just drove the old minivan down the tail of the dragon today, and he said, rides like it's on rails, I bet. <laughs> and he was not wrong. Now, 
Some of you have been through there, and you know that as you're driving through, there are photographers set up along the roadside taking a, a picture, taking pictures of all the vehicles that go by, and you can visit their website the next day, and you can download, you know, the picture of your sweet ride traveling down this popular stretch of highway. And uh, while I'm too cheap to pay for that picture, I did visit the website the next day and take some screenshots. Uh, I slowed down a little bit to make sure the guy got some good ones. Here's one. Uh, this is uh, some crazy guy with crazy eyes. I, I knew he was coming up, so I hung out my window a little bit. And then because my kids really appreciate it when I do stuff like this, I slowed way down, uh, gave a warrior's yell and a little flex of the bicep. And uh, again, my kids were so glad I asked, uh, asked if he got a good shot of my arm, and he said he did, and so then off we went. Uh, by the way, if you'd like that picture printed on a t-shirt, you can do that uh, <laughs> at the website listed there. I mean, people will go and they'll buy, you know, posters and t-shirts and pictures to remember their epic journey through the tale of the dragon. You know, it, it, it's just a fact that we're all going to be remembered for something, aren't we? And uh, whether it's our great driving skills or, or maybe excelling at a, a certain sport or academics or our business savvy or even being a great mom or, or dad or a great friend, we'll all be remembered for something. And one of the things that really sticks out to me about what the disciples noticed about Jesus, what was memorable about him, was what they asked him in Luke chapter 11 in verse 1. They asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Of all the things that they could have asked him, one of the things that they were sure to ask him was to teach them to pray. They saw something in the way that Jesus interacted with his father, and it was very different than anything they had seen or experienced before, and they wanted it. They wanted a prayer life like Jesus. And I think Tim Keller gets at the heart of what Jesus was modeling for his disciples in prayer when he writes this. Tim Keller says, prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. We must learn to pray. So Jesus demonstrated the importance of prayer throughout his life. He prayed regularly. He prayed faithfully. He prayed like his life depended on it, sometimes spending the entire night in prayer. This is what he modeled for his disciples, but he wasn't just putting on a show. He wasn't only praying for their benefit. Jesus prayed because in his humanity, he so desperately wanted to be close to his father. He wanted to share his joys and his griefs. He knew that, that in prayer, he could gain clarity and encouragement and insight and guidance. And Jesus only ever sought those things from his father in heaven. And he did it through regular times of prayer. And his disciples saw this, and they wanted it too. Lord, teach us how to pray. You know, I think most of us uh, desire prayer. Uh, most of us engage in prayer, at least from time to time. I think we know we should pray. Uh, I think many of us even have a deep desire to pray, but oftentimes we struggle to actually do it. We struggle to put this into practice and to maintain any kind of a of a, a meaningful prayer life. And so if that's true of you, I, I'm so glad that you're here this morning. And I hope you can find encouragement in the fact that Jesus' own disciples didn't have this figured out. They had to ask the same question that we are asking today. And when they asked it, you know, Jesus didn't tell them, you know what, figure it out on your own, right? If you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. No, Jesus didn't say that. 
Jesus gave them and us a model for prayer. It's what we call today the Lord's Prayer. And I wonder if you would pray it with me this morning. Let's pray these words together. Starting at our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And no wonder, no matter what version of this prayer that, that maybe you grew up hearing and, and reciting, we all say some different words when we do this by memory. It all comes back to the same idea. Jesus taught us how to pray. This is how Jesus told us to pray. But of course, he wasn't teaching that this is the only thing we should ever pray, just these exact words. It's not like a script in a play. Rather, we're we're using this as a framework, we're using it as a structure, and we're building off of it, building off of the ideas that are found in the Lord's Prayer. In fact, this has been so helpful in my own prayer life. Each morning when I pray, and then often throughout the day, I'll recite the Lord's Prayer, and I'll let each line recenter my heart and my mind on the things that, that Jesus taught us to be mindful of when we pray. And so last week, as we kicked off this new series, uh, we focused on that first line, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we learned that prayer should be more than just taking our wish list to God and then hoping he will grant us everything we want. Rather, prayer is one of the most significant tools we have in cultivating a relationship with God. And in the same way that Jesus prayed to his father, we should pray to God as our perfect, loving, heavenly father. And we remember the great price that he paid in order to secure our adoption as his sons and as his daughters. Through the blood of Jesus, we're able to approach this heavenly, different, holy God as father, as dad. And in response to that awesome privilege, we pray, hallowed be your name. Or in more modern terms, we might say, may your name be made holy in my life today. Let the words of my mouth, let the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you and glorify you, Lord. And then we come to the next line of Jesus' prayer. It's the line I want to focus in on today. We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we've all said those words, I I imagine, uh, maybe even this morning for the first time. But what does it really mean to pray those words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, I think that it might be helpful to start with a a definition of what we mean when we say the word kingdom. What do we mean when we say that? And in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard gives a definition that I find really helpful. He says that kingdom is the range of your effective will. Okay, that's what we mean when we say kingdom. I want you to think about that for a minute. Your kingdom is the space where what you want to have happen actually happens. That's your kingdom. We all have spaces like that where things function the way that we want them to function. So maybe you're the boss at your workplace and you get to call the shots, you get to decide how people are gonna work and what they're gonna work on and so you would would look at that and under this definition, maybe that is your kingdom. Or maybe you're not the boss at work but you're a parent 
And so your home becomes more of the range of your effective will. Or maybe you're the parent of a toddler and your home is the range of their effective will, right? It can play out a number of different ways. Students, maybe uh, you're at a stage of life where it feels like you're just a part of of everybody else's kingdom and, and you never get to express your will. But think about how you use your leisure time. Think about how you use your finances. See, we can all probably come up with some ideas of how this plays out in our lives. And to varying degrees, all of us have spaces where uh, what we desire to have happen, that's what happens. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about this word kingdom. So when we read about the kingdom of heaven, we should picture a place where God's will is only and always done. It's his rules, his way. It's the space where things are exactly as God intends for them to be. That's the kingdom of God. And that's different than what happens here on earth, isn't it? We can all think of of a lot of illustrations of, of how God's will and God's ways do not play out on planet earth. In fact, the psalmist writes in Psalm 115, 16, that the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. And so there's a distinction that's made in this passage between heaven and earth, and it has to do with authority. It has to do with dominion. And of course, the Lord God has ultimate authority and dominion over all of his creation, but he has given mankind free will and a space where he can exercise that free will. It's called earth. And so that's what the writer is describing in Psalm 115. It's two distinct spaces, or you could say kingdoms. Now, to help us understand this, I want to show you a video this morning from thebibleproject.org, and uh, I think this is going to help us understand why Jesus would ask us to pray, your kingdom come. I want you to check this out. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but... This idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out, and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now, and the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. 
Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible was all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right, so we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed 
creation, and God's space and human space completely overlap once again. I'm sorry. All of their videos there are, are free and uh, would encourage you to go and, and check them out. Just a lot of helpful content there. But the last question they addressed in that video was what happens when you die? And you see the little guy swan diving over from earth to heaven. And, and I think that it's important to focus in on that because many of us grew up with an understanding that Jesus' whole point and his whole mission was to die so that one day we could leave here and we could go there. That was the, the whole point of it, to make sure that one day we could leave earth and go to heaven. And so the whole point of living is actually just to get to dying so that we can get out of here. But in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to pray something completely different. Jesus tells us to pray that heaven would come here, that go, uh, going there is what's going to happen one day. But until that day, we're to make it our goal and our prayer to see heaven brought here. And so that's why Jesus instructs us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the focus of that kind of prayer is what is happening here. And so I want to finish this morning giving you three things that this prayer reminds us to be mindful of. If you're taking notes, you're welcome to write these down. The first is this. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying for Christ's return. We're praying for Jesus to return. Before Jesus went to the cross, he promised that he would come again. He has given us his Holy Spirit as a, a deposit guaranteeing that he is coming again. And he has given us his scriptures with, which instruct us to, to put all of our hope in the grace that will be given when Christ is revealed. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we are remembering those things and we are praying for that day. We are asking Jesus to return and we are asking him to do it soon. When I pray this, I, I so often think of Revelation 21, which uh, the video illustrated there at the end, the new heavens and the new earth. He says, uh, there, John says there, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Don't you long for that day? Don't you desire for that? When we pray your kingdom come, we are praying for this. We are praying for the coming reign of Jesus. We are asking God to give, give us faith and hope about that day. It's a reminder that the things of this earth are temporary because a day is coming when all of the brokenness of this world will be no more. Come, Lord Jesus, come today. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the first thing. Here's something else I want you to remember to be mindful of when you pray those words. It's that we want God to work through our church. We want God to work through our church. Christ's church has an incredibly important role to play as we wait for his return. 
And though we long for the day when he will return, we need to pray like Paul. Uh, we need to pray that the prayer that we find in Philippians 1, 21 through 22. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And most of us are probably familiar with that part of this passage. But look at what he says next. He says, but if I am to go on living in this body, it will mean fruitful labor for me. Paul says that I would rather die. I'd rather go and be with Christ. But as long as I'm going to be breathing and living in this body, it's going to mean fruitful labor for me. That is so different than just waiting for Christ to come so that we can go to heaven, isn't it? It means that we've got a job to do here, fruitful labor. It's seeing the hurt, it's seeing the brokenness and the confusion in our world and acknowledging that God wants to use his church to bring light and hope and healing. We can't just sit around waiting for Jesus to come. We have been given a mission. We have a critical part to play. The church is God's means for bringing the good news of Jesus to the world. It's us, Genesis. It's us. Think about this. This time last year, none of us had any idea that there was a pandemic on the way. And I don't know about you, but I have a hard time even remembering what this time last year was like. What was normal like a year ago? It's so different. So much has changed and so much continues to change. But the mission hasn't changed. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your mission has not changed. The events of this past year past year should certainly cause us to pray more faithfully for the return of Jesus, but our mission of making disciples has not changed. I sat by a pastor on an airplane one time, and, and this guy had written a book. He gave me uh, the book, and the title of it was uh, Plan A, and There Is No Plan B. And the whole book was about the church's mission. We are God's plan A for reaching the world, and there is no plan B. We are it. That means we have to stay laser focused. We have to stay on mission. We have to pray for God's kingdom to come through us and his will to be done in us. I really like the way Brad Gray describes what this looks like. Brad says, it's the rule and reign of God advancing here on earth, bringing healing and wholeness by chasing out the chaos and pushing out the dark, the sin and the death that has corrupted God's good world. That's our mission as the church. God has invited us into this work of chasing out the chaos, pushing back the darkness and the sin. And it's so incredible that God would invite us to be a part of that. It's so honoring that he would, he would invite us to be a part of, of his work. And we do it by making disciples. We do it by loving people in our groups and in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. We do it by giving generously of our time and of our talents and of our resources. We do it by serving both here at Genesis and also outside of these walls. And all of the time, we're looking for opportunities to share Jesus Christ with others, to see his kingdom come and his will done on earth as it is in heaven. One more thing to be mindful of when we're praying this prayer and it's the fact that we want God to rule over our lives. We want God to rule over our lives. We read earlier in Psalm 115 that the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. And in praying this prayer, in saying the words, your kingdom come, your will be done, it's as if we're giving our kingdoms back to him. He has given us dominion and authority here on earth, 
And in praying this prayer, we are offering it right back to him. We are giving him back all of our small kingdoms. Because in order for God to rule over our lives, we're going to have to lay down our own will and our own rights to any kingdom here. When I pray this line, I'm reminded that there are so many smaller kingdoms in my life that I can focus my attention on. I can focus on the kingdom of my work, the kingdom of my family, the kingdom of pleasure, the kingdom of leisure. And in order for God to rule and reign in my life, I have to stop focusing on my own kingdoms and start joining God at work in his. And that's why we've latched on to the language of being a kingdom worker here at Genesis. Maybe you've heard us use that phrase before. A kingdom worker is someone who believes and understands that they have a role to play in bringing God's kingdom to earth. And a kingdom worker doesn't look at the world the way that they used to look at the world. And so their workplace is no longer just a place where they go to get ahead or, or where they go to make more money, but rather it's, it's a mission field. It's a place where we pray, God, let your kingdom come here. And school becomes not just a place where you go to get ahead academically or a place where you go just because you have to, but rather it's a place where we go and we pray, God, let your will be done here. Let your will be done in me, at my school, and in others around me. And your home becomes more than just a place where we go to get away from the demands of life, from the demands of, of work, from the, the pressures that come with living in this world, but it becomes a place to love and to serve our families and our neighbors. And as kingdom workers, we lay our kingdoms down for the sake of seeing God's kingdom come. We lay our will down so that his will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. I hope you'll remember those three things uh, as you pray this part of the Lord's Prayer. But I want to share one more thing with you before we close. I've referenced Psalm 115 a couple of times uh, in this sermon this morning. And it's interesting to note that both in Matthew and in Mark's gospel, on the night of the Last Supper, the night when Jesus would be betrayed, there's a, there's a small note included in both of those gospels that at the end of the Passover meal, after Jesus has repurposed it and, and he has served the first communion to his disciples, we get this, uh, we get this note that they sang a hymn. Have you ever noticed that in those gospels? They sang a hymn together. And the hymn that they sang is actually something that's called the Egyptian Hillel, or sometimes it's just referenced as the Hillel. And it is literally Psalm 113 through 118. And so Psalm 113 through 114 would be sung before the Passover meal, and Psalm 115 through 118 would be sung after the Passover meal. And if you've ever wondered the words that were on Jesus' lips the night that he would be betrayed, go and read Psalm 113 through 118. It's fascinating to read that with that perspective in mind, that the things that, that were coming out of his mouth there and, and the things that would have been on his heart and mind, knowing that the cross was ahead of them, I'm telling you, it just gives it an, an amazing new purpose and, and new understanding. But the whole point of the Passover meal was to remember God's faithfulness in redeeming and rescuing Israel out of bondage to slavery in Egypt. And through these Psalms, 113 through 18, you will find allusions to the coming Messiah who would once again and for all eternity redeem God's people and rescue them from bondage to sin. 
And so as these words, even of Psalm 115, are on Jesus' lips about the highest heavens belong to the Lord and the, the earth he has given to mankind, he's thinking about that separation of heaven and earth, and yet at the same time, he knows that the cross is before him and that he will go there as the sacrifice that will bring these two kingdoms back together. And after singing that hymn, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he poured out his heart, pleading, My Father, if it is possible... Let this cup be taken from me, yet not I will, but as you will, your will be done. See, Jesus surrendered his will in the garden, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. And on that cross, he absorbed God's wrath. He paid the penalty for our sins. And in doing so, he bridged the gap between heaven and earth. Jesus prayed, your will be done. And then he did it. He laid down his life for us, and he has called us to lay down our lives for him. Jesus is coming again. He has given us a mission. It begins by letting Christ rule in our hearts. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we recognize Father, that it is only by your grace and only by your mercy, only because of your great love for us, that we can approach you in such, a, such an informal, such a, such a casual and yet such an intimate way as to call you Father. There's no way that that would be possible outside of your great love for us, sending your one and only Son, that whoever would believe in you would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you that while you are God in heaven, you came near to us in Christ. And because of that, Lord, the response of our heart is, may your name be made holy in me. We want to be people who live holy lives in response to what you've done. Father, we're not trying to earn your love. There's nothing that we could do to earn your love. We simply live lives of obedience before you because we want to tell you we love you for all that you've done for us. And God, we do pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it starts with us, Father. It starts with us laying down our kingdoms and surrendering our lives to you. It begins with, with us recognizing that there is more to this life than just living and dying. Lord, you have a mission for us. You have a purpose for us. You have called us to make disciples and to share your good news with others. And Father, we want to be faithful to that. We want to see your kingdom come through us. We want to see your will be done in us, in our church, in our communities. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for inviting us into that. We thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray today. Amen. Hey, a few things before we close this morning. Uh, if you were with us last weekend, you know that we've put together four prayers that we are asking you to pray with us as we move throughout this series. They're on the screen now. They're also on the Genesis Church app and on our website, and we've got printed versions of this at the Info Hub. But I want to ask again, would you commit to praying these four things uh, throughout the next five or six weeks? And let's all be praying this together to see God's will be done and his kingdom come in us. 
Before we leave today, I also want to take a minute to thank you for your faithfulness and giving here at Genesis Church. Uh, your giving is helping move us forward in our mission of helping people find their way back to God. If you came prepared to give a gift today, you'll notice that there are boxes attached to the wall next to both of our exits. You're welcome to drop those gifts there. You can also text one word, Church Genesis, to 77977. Uh, or visit the giving site at genesischurch.me slash give. One last thing, uh, Jen mentioned earlier that today is Orphan Sunday. And in recognition of that, and because of your generosity through our greater initiative, uh, I am so pleased to announce today that Genesis has started a new grant program for families in our church who are in the process of fostering or adopting. So families who are a part of Genesis Church can now apply for a grant of up to $1,000 to help defray the expense related to adopting a child or starting the process of being a foster home. So if you'd like to know more, I want to invite you to please email us at info at genesischurch.me. But again, this is only possible because of your generous giving to our greater initiative. And what a cool way to see God's kingdom come here on earth. Hey, I hope you have a great week. And uh, we hope to see you back here next weekend. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.